Okay, let's do it. You ready? Yeah, man. Sahil Bloom, welcome to the Running Effect podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I am stoked to be here, and as a fan of the podcast for a while now, uh, it is a joy to be able to pop your in-person podcast, Cherry. <laughs> First question for you that I got to ask. Loyal followers will know you get your son a, a stuffed animal every trip. You're only a few hours into this one, so I'm assuming you didn't get one, but maybe at the airport. What are you thinking for this Yeah, Austin that's a good trip? question. Austin, Texas. Um, you know, because usually I go with like <clears throat> something that's sort of like has a local vibe. Like I just was in Vancouver and I got him a, an otter from the Vancouver Aquarium. What, like what is Texas known for? Like snakes? Uh, I don't really know what Austin, Texas would be known for. Maybe like an armadillo. Yeah. Is that here? I don't know. I'll figure it out. I'll see what the uh, usually like airport gift shops have, whatever the local animal is. And so I'll do that. Where did the tradition start? Um, you know, when my dad would travel when I was a kid, I always remember him bringing back something from the trips, like some little souvenir or something that was kind of to the place that he had gone. And he traveled a lot internationally. And so I always just like had this collection of interesting things from all the places he had visited. And then when we would go together, as I got a little bit older, we would do the same thing. We'd bring something back. Um, and so I just thought like, it's a fun way to kind of include my son in the journey that I'm having with some of these travels. Like I do have to be away from him and that bums me out. But when I do that, it's a nice way to kind of like bring something back from the trip that as he gets older, I'll be able to explain to him where I was, why, you know, why I was doing it, whatever. A question I have for you off the top of my head was a post. I think I saw on Instagram or LinkedIn or, or one of the five channels that you post on <laughs> and you were writing on a quote or something that someone had said, which was the only people who will remember that you worked late are your kids 20 years from now, something to the extent of that. Can you share your thoughts on that subject? Yeah. <clears throat> so there was this, it was basically this viral Reddit post that someone did that said exactly that. It said 20 years from now, the only people that will remember you working late are your kids. And it went viral because everyone was agreeing with it basically and saying like, yeah, don't work late. <laughs> um, and I'm really of two minds on this topic because one side of me says, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I have an 18 month old. I know that you get this like 10 year period when you as their parent are the most important person in their entire world. And then it's gone and you're never going to get it back. And so being present as much as possible during that 10 years is unbelievably important. And like when you put that in comparison to working late on whatever it is you're working on, it feels crazy. The flip side of it, like the second mind that I feel is we live in a world where you need to embody the values that you want your child to learn and to embrace like before he was born I would say the number one thing I thought which has proven wrong was that I could teach him anything like I used to think oh yeah like here's the 20 things I'm going to teach my son I'm going to teach him this I'm going to teach him this I'm going to teach him this and it's mostly bullshit excuse my language um it's mostly they see how you act how you behave how you interact with others, all of those things. And they're going to embody a lot of the values that you are embodying on a daily basis. And so one of those values that I feel very strongly about is hard work. And so being able to balance both being present and showing that present energy with him and making sure he knows why I'm working hard on things and that when I'm working, I'm working hard on something because I care about it and it's meaningful to me is really like the tension that I think we all need to balance. And to me, what it means is that it's not about work-life balance, which is kind of places naturally work and life in this like conflict. And it's more about work-life harmony where you start saying like, how can the two actually serve and, 
and sort of amplify and expand upon each other in a better way. When I said 20 years, it reminded me of this quote that I actually wrote down. And the quote was, 20 years from now, you'd give anything to be this exact age, exactly this healthy, and this in, exact, in, in this exact moment. Take a second to enjoy it. I also came across, and I think you've written on this as well, the, the concept that you're in your golden years and that people you know, expect that 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, they'll be in the, their golden years, yet generally the golden years are where our feet are. So yeah. are How old are you? 18. Yeah. So, I mean, I this is crazy. Yeah, I can't think back to 20 no, years ago. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> crazy to me. Like I'm, I'm blown away by someone your age doing the things you're doing already. Cause I think about the stuff I was doing at 18. It's like not, I probably wouldn't want to talk about it on a podcast. So I'll just, <laughs> we'll just leave it off. It's, it's probably past the statute of limitations, but we won't talk about it. Um, yeah, I, uh, my general view on this is that <clears throat> you spend most of your time when you're young thinking about some future and some happiness that is contingent upon some achievement. And like for you right now, you're building this thing, you're building this business, building this, you know, what I would imagine is going to become a an empire. And everything in your mind is about that next goal. It's like, I want to hit, you know, a million dollars of revenue, and then I want to hit 10 million, and then I want to hit 100 million, all those things. And the whole time, you're basically deferring your happiness and fulfillment to some achievement of something. So you're saying, it's called a when-then trap, where you say, like, when I get X, whatever the X is, then I'll be happy. And when you do that, the problem is you get to whatever that thing is and it disappears. It's just a mirage. Like you think you're going to be happy and have fulfillment from it, but you get it. And then it's just the next level, whatever the next level of it is. It's just 3x whatever the thing was. And what people do and where they, where they fall into the trap is you keep doing that and then you die. You literally just keep doing that over and over and over again until you die. Like you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to be happy when I make a million dollars. Then you make a million. You say, I'm going to be happy when I make five million. Then you make five million. Oh, I'm going to be happy when I make 15. And you just keep doing that. You're never happy. And then you die. You literally like what you're looking down at whatever this stuff is until you end up falling into your grave. And the reality is like you need to, it's so cliche to say, but it's so true. You need to fall in love with whatever the journey is, like whatever the actual process is on a daily basis. That is where you need to find your joy and fulfillment. Because if it's tied to whatever the achievement is, whatever the metric is, whatever the KPI is of your success, you're going to be sorely disappointed on the back end of it. 20 years ago, you would have been 12. So maybe like 15 years ago to high school, Sahil, if you could have coffee with him over a good Dunkin' Donuts cold brew, what would be some things you would share in that conversation, ways you'd want to guide him? Oh, gosh. Um, all right, I've got a lot for you. So I would say the first one is it's okay to have friends that you lose over the years. Um, and this is a tough one for a lot of people. And it, it was a tough one for me, uh, because I self-identify as someone that is like kind or caring or a loyal friend and separating that from the fact that you are going to have people in your life that are no longer well suited for where you're going is a really, really important thing when you're young. As an example, you have your high school friends, your middle school friends, your childhood friends, you can love them to death, but if they're not the right people to propel you towards where you are headed and what your vision is for your own future, they should not be a core part of your life anymore. And it sounds harsh, but it's just true. If, if you're 
you know, if, if your mentality and your ambitions are driving you forward to some really bright future and you're surrounded by people that are telling you to be realistic, that are sort of like laughing at whatever it is that your grand ambitions are, are like doing the little thing where they kind of have the subtle dig at whatever it is that you're saying you want to go accomplish, you are not serving yourself by spending more time with those people, point blank. And you need to eliminate them from your life. And that doesn't mean like telling the person, hey, I'm eliminating you from my life. But it does mean repositioning how you think about spending your time and energy. And not enough people do that. You know, like a hermit crab literally like sheds its entire shell and moves on to a new one. And we need to be able to do that with the people that we're spending time with. There's a... Um, there's studies that have now shown, like there's the common saying that people say uh, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. with yeah. And it's actually not true. It's been debunked. It's even worse than that. What it is is that you are going to converge to the lowest common denominator of the people you spend mm. time with. Like there was this study where they gave people walking treadmills at their desks and observed how much they walked on the treadmills. And what happened was everyone converged to the least walking person. It wasn't like everyone, <laughs> there was some like nice average and they converged to that it was who they, you went to the worst and so if you have one really negative person in your life that is going to drag you down like there, it's not a oh like everyone else is positive and i just have this one person they're just they're just like that that's how they are i hate that now when i think back on it like i, I would have been much better served by just like gradually moving on from those people um and i would have been much happier and just healthier in general and frankly it happens your entire life so like learning it at 18 is really powerful because you're going to have those same people at 25 and at 35 i mean i i have people in my life that i probably need to start slowly moving away from now like it just happens because you change and that some of those people won't change that doesn't mean they're bad people, by the way. Like they're gonna have the right people for them, and you're gonna have the right people for you. It just needs it, it needs to be a, a constant. Game. Yeah, you're playing a totally different game, and it's okay. It's okay to play a different game and to continue to move in your own directions. Two questions for you off of that. The first one being that I'm very curious about. I think it's easier. It's never easy to do those things and to make those actions and to have those hard conversations. But I think it's easier to do that with like a colleague, a, a friend, a schoolmate versus someone in your family. Yeah. How do you approach the differences <clears throat> of relationship where naturally family is just another level? And what would be some advice to someone listening to this podcast who totally sympathizes with everything you said, but they're like, well, the person's like a sister or brother or a parent. Yeah, I get that question a lot because when I've talked about this publicly, the first, the most common response you get is like, <clears throat> you know, that person is my mom or that person is my sibling. Um, and it's really challenging, right? Like I am very fortunate in the fact that my direct family is unbelievably supportive and loving and, and um, you know, really believes me probably more than they should have at a lot of times in my life. Um, when it's your family member, I think there's really two options. The first one is they need to really understand why they're like how they are causing you pain around these things. Uh, it's not enough to just tell the person like, hey, don't say that or whatever it is that they were doing that was pulling you down. They need to understand that it's having like a true negative impact on you and that you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, like continue in the capacity of the relationship that you have today if they continue to do that. And that honestly often shocks the system enough that like a parent who is demeaning you in certain ways and you're able to actually vocalize that to them. It's not just like, hey, quit it. It's like a true direct conversation of this is I like the way that you were talking about my dreams is demeaning. And unless you have actual evidence or something to say, that's not just critical unless you have like direct actual like feedback that is going to be helpful to me. Um, 
having this conversation with you is a real negative in my life. That type of conversation people generally don't have. And if you do, you'll often find that it shocks the other person into the right place. And the second step is like, it just needs to be limited. The interaction with these people needs to be limited. And that's okay, right? Like again, family, you are connected to family by blood and there's always going to be a blood relationship there. Like I could be I could not see my sister for 10 years. And if she was in trouble, I'm going to show up at her door and I'm going to be able to help her because she's blood. Like there's something there that matters and that's fine. Uh, but you need to make sure that you actually balance the energy that they're having and the impact that that energy is having on your life. The, the second question I had for you in relation to what you were just sharing was this fantastic quote that went right in line with what you were talking about. And the quote was, the biggest way to kill a big dream is to share it with a small mind. Mm -hmm. How do you personally decide who you share your big dreams and ambitions with? I keep it to myself most of the time. Um, there are very few people in your life, and I'm talking not one hand, like maybe one person, maybe two people, that will ever believe in you as much as you believe in yourself. And will ever have that capacity, right? Like if you're a big thinker, if you have big dreams, ambitions for yourself, the first line of it is you. Like you have to believe that you can do the thing before you have any evidence to prove it. And once you do that, you're lucky if you have one other person in your life that does that. I think I probably have a few. I think, I think like my wife is like that. And I am so, so fortunate to have someone in my life that believes in me at that level and I think your parents maybe, if you're lucky, are that way. A lot of parents tell tell their kids to be realistic, and so that's that's a tough one. Um, but being around big thinkers is a hugely fortunate. Like if you are in an environment where you're around big thinkers, amazing things happen. It's I mean it's insane. Like you moved to Austin, right? It's a perfect example. Like when you can get into an environment where you're surrounded by people that are sort of having these big dreams and big ambitions about their life it's the b biggest unlock that I can possibly imagine having when you're young. There's, um, there's this story that I love of, uh, the Medici family. They're like the, uh, bankers, like some of the first bankers in the world, uh, extraordinarily wealthy. And, uh, this is in like 15th century Florence. They were the first ones that started giving any funding or money to artists, to architects, artists, designers, etc. So all of the artists, architects, and designers of the era flocked to 15th century Florence. They were all in the same city at the exact same moment in time. And what happened was all of these incredible innovative thinkers were in one place at one time, and it sparked this incredible discourse and dialogue that ended up giving rise to the ideas of the Renaissance. And now you have this enormous you know, ripple effect through the entirety of history that came out of this one family funding all of these big thinkers to be in one place at one time. And my point from all of that is like, you have to find your version of 15th century Florence. When you're young, especially, at any age really, but when you're young especially, if you can put yourself into one of those places and just be there and be in the mix, sort of, the impact that that has on your life from just being around a lot of positive, some big thinkers is enormous. I mean, almost incalculable being able to do that. In your own life and journey throughout it, what have been some of the biggest skills you've utilized to try and formulate a strong inner circle of friends of mentors of people who are pushing you to be the best version of yourself and what would you tell someone who realizes that they need a better circle but doesn't quite know where to start i think you have to find 
those little communities of people and how it happens is you find the one person and they pull you into their community. The way you do that is by creating value for people with no expectation of return. Um, I mean, I've been blown away by like the willingness of random people to help when you've shown them sort of a genuine desire to help them. Uh, I've never been someone that has been fond of the like quid pro quo idea of networking because you kind of have two sides to this, right? Like you have a lot of young people, uh, you know, you go on LinkedIn and it's like networking hustle, like go meet <laughs> as many people as you possibly can get a ton of, uh, you know, business cards or whatever the old way of doing this was. And that's how I'm going to develop the network that is going to propel me forward into my future. I think that's like 1950s, right? Like that's like really, really old school. Maybe it worked at one point in time. Maybe there's still pockets where it works today. Um, but the real way that this works is like you just get into the rooms with these people that are positive some and you start figuring out like how can I create value for these people? And maybe it's, you know, tiny little things like maybe you find out you're in one of those rooms and someone is really into running and, you know, but their shin is hurting them. You're like, oh, I actually did this episode or I created, you know, the, I, here's some research that was interesting and you follow up and you send them that. Now, all of a sudden, you're like in a different level in their mind. You're not just someone that was at the event with them or something. You're like the person that was helpful to them and didn't ask for something in return. So now they really want to help you, right? Like it's it's this um, it's this kind of natural like cosmic energy that gets created. And you can't really pinpoint exactly what you did other than just being a genuine person that wanted to create value for those around you. And when everyone is like that, that like it, it like attracts like. And so the energy actually gets pulled in uh, in that same way, in, in a really, really powerful way. And it only happens in certain places, by the way. It's really hard to harness this energy if you're like, living out by yourself, uh, you know, not able to like get into these dinners, get into these rooms, get into these conversations. Um, you can find your way to them and you can travel to these places and try. Uh, but the real power comes from just like immersing yourself in it, even for a short period of time, being in Austin for six months, three months, being in New York city for three months of your life, the amount of value that you can get from that in terms of the relationships and the things that spark from it is just incredible. I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on this. I heard from a few people uh, in relation to that discussion of, of formulating a better friend group, a, a better group of people that they said, in the age of social media and books and podcasts, you can actually have mentors and quote unquote friends that you'll never meet. And I think it's actually kind of interesting because even without meeting you before today, I know so much about you. I've learned so much from you. Similar thing with books. If you read enough books of someone, you can be mentored by them in that way. What are your thoughts on kind of harnessing the digital age for that piece of mentorship and, and friendship in a sense? I think it only goes so far. Uh, I'm pretty old school in that I really believe in the power of doing this. I totally agree with you. We kind of knew each other. I'd listened to a bunch of your podcasts. I loved your content. You had probably, you know, connected with some of the content I had put out. We had talked, we had texted, but I feel more connected to you after spending five minutes chatting before this podcast than I ever would have, I think. From having, like, we could have had a hundred hours of conversations on Zoom and all these different places, but now seeing you face to face, uh, talking, like laughing about something, the connection is just totally different that gets created when you're in person because we're like, we're social creatures, right? At the end of the day. And so technology is great because it reduces the friction to initial contact. Like, that, that is fundamentally what this does it reduces the friction to initial contact. 
And that is an amazing thing for evening the opportunity playing field. Anyone in the world, a kid born on the streets of India who has access to a phone and access to the internet can engage with your content, can engage with my content just as much as like a rich kid born in Greenwich, Connecticut. The difference is actually finding your way into those rooms where you're able to develop the in-person and face-to-face -face connection that leads to the like real big outcomes that still hasn't been even that's still really challenging to harness so if you have the privilege of being in a position where you can get into those rooms where you can put yourself in a position where you're in the space physically i think there's no there's nothing in the world that can replace it I mean, it's one of the things that i am really deeply committed to now like one of the things i am most excited and energized by now is going around the world and doing in-person events and like dramatically lowering the barrier to people getting into these rooms. I mean, I would love to go like in 2024, I will go host an event in India that will hopefully be effectively free and can bring together hopefully thousands of young people into a place where we can all, you know, interact and spend time. And that I think is like where the real power is. It's like when you take those URL relationships, the online relationships, and you bring them into the real world, uh, that's where the real magic happens. This is speaking a few years in the future, so I'm not sure if you've thought this far, but you mentioned a minute ago kind of the concept of getting your foot in the door with certain groups to kind of develop those friendships and those communities. Have you thought in advance of specific groups or things you want to put your son through to get him around specific people that you know will make him better? Yeah, I think team sports is probably the number one thing that i can imagine for that and and i would by the way like team sports i would expand the definition of like if he's if he loves drama that's a team sport right you're having to coordinate with a massive you know group of people to put something together that is like a team sport effort you're going and putting something that's the same exact thing those kind of things where you need to interact with tons of different personalities bring people together have leaders have followers um you know all of those interpersonal dynamics you wrestle with failure you have to have the bounce back the grit the resilience all the things you talk about with the elite runners on your podcast you can't teach that like you there's nothing other than sports broadly defined that I can imagine teaching a kid that to like if you were to build a perfect human and you want to build a human uh, that is going to live a great life they need to have those attributes they need to be resilient they need to have grit they need to understand the value and the impact of hard work all of those things you could just bottle I mean it's a pill right like team sports is a pill that would deliver you all of those things um and so, like, for me, when I think about my son's life, that's one of the most important things. Like, you have to do stuff like that. The other side of that, by the way, is, and why running, I think, is so powerful, why pitching for me was really powerful in baseball, is team sport plus really challenging individual endeavor is a unique combination um, because that feeling of the entire spotlight on you that feeling of the mental challenge of like if you screw up it's on you and you need to pick yourself back up because you don't have 10 team members that can like if you're playing tennis or if you're running a bad race your teammates can't run the race for you and so if you're halfway in and your team needs you to come in the top 10 in order for the whole team to win you just got to figure it out if you're having a calf cramp or whatever the thing is you can't teach that and so i i really think that like that combination is also an interesting one that um Again, I just like, I come back to go build that perfect human. Like, how would you go do it? That's clearly one of the ways for me. 
Going off of the team sports aspect, for those that don't know, you went to Stanford and you played baseball for Stanford, and, and we can get into all sorts of stories from that experience in a minute. But what was your first experience Oof. in team sports growing up, and what was the impact it had on you? <laughs> baseball would have been my first team sport experience. I, you know, I honestly didn't really fail that much at sports until I got to Stanford. I, I, I went to a small, that's not to say that I was like so, so amazing. I just, I was in a small town in Massachusetts. And my entire life, I could throw a ball harder than anyone I was around. Um, until I got to Stanford, by the way. <laughs> then, I, then I could not. But, um, but up until that point, I had always been the kid that was, like, the best at throwing the ball on the team. And I didn't play a whole ton of other sports. I played some basketball, played some soccer when I was a kid. And I was always, like, reasonably athletic. And in a small town, you know, whatever. You stand out and you're fine. Um, my first real failure, actually, was, like, I was 12 years old. I was trying out for some random all-star team, like Eastern Mass All-Stars or something. And I really wanted to make it for whatever reason. Like, I had been driving towards this one goal for a, like for at least like a year and a half. I'd really wanted to make this one team. And I was the last cut before making this team, 12-year-old. And I cried. I mean, I must have cried the whole way on the ride home. And I can't imagine now, like, being a parent, um, there's a lot of pain that comes from seeing your kid uh, experience a trauma in any way. And... I just remember that being a really formative experience of like the failure that came and then my dad telling me uh, all that matters is like what comes next and whatever you do on the back of this is going to be what defines this thing. Like are you going to sit and mope around all summer or are you going to use it to get better at whatever it is that you want to be getting better at? And that summer I ended up having one of the most amazing baseball experiences playing with all the kids from my town because I hadn't made that. And that built these like incredible bonds and relationships. We made it really far in this one tournament. Um, and some of the best memories of my life came out of that massive failure that I was so disappointed by. And so I remember that being like a really formative thing that connected in my mind of that idea that my dad said, like, what comes on the back of that failure is going to be what defines it. And again, it's like, it's cliche. We talk about that kind of thing a lot, but it's hard to internalize until you actually experience something like that. I think with high school sports, I think I was a byproduct of it. Once you start to see and I think this goes with many things in life. Once you start to see any sort of progress, you get obsessed with seeing how far you can go within it. What are your thoughts on the aspect of, and I'm sure you could speak to this in your own high school experience, obsession of high school sports and specifically, I'm sure you felt this. I feel like high schoolers feel this immense need to go D1 or to like win nationals or whatever it might be. Do you think it's healthy for a kid that age to channel that or do you think it can be destructive? I think ambition is a good thing. Uh, parent involvement and the business side of youth sports is a bad thing. Uh, I know I know it very intimately in the baseball world. When I was in high school, committing like I committed to Stanford my junior year of high school. That was like early. Um, now there are eighth graders committing to colleges in baseball. I'm seventh graders committing. Um, there is a massive industrial complex built around these private teams where parents are paying $5,000 a summer to send their kids to all these fancy jerseys and all this stuff. And that is really a bad thing for these sports. Um, because for a lot of kids, it saps the joy out of it. You no longer have the like true childlike curiosity and joy of playing this sport, which is really sad because that 
at the end of the day, you're playing a kid's game, whether it's baseball, whether it's running, like all these things. We're humans. We're meant to move around. We're meant to play games. We're meant to compete. And doing all of this fancy stuff, spending all this money, having this whole industrial complex around it, it takes a lot of that away. And it puts a ton of pressure on the kids to go and make like an ROI on this investment that their parents are making. You, you know, your parents aren't like, your parents are investing $5,000, what $10,000 for the summer, whatever it is. Like they, they're told it's because you're going to go D1 and that's going to sound impressive. By the way, a lot of the parents, they want, like the reason they're doing it is because they want to sound impressive to their friends. They want to be able to say like, my kid's going D1 at this place. And that it's a flex for them, for their kids to be successful, which is again, just like parents need to chill a little bit with that stuff. But it really is. It's like a social status thing for parents to say where their kids are going to school, what sport they're playing, whatever, all of those things. It's not about the kid's happiness. Sometimes, very rarely, it's like, I know my kid will be really happy if they, you know, hit their true potential with this thing. So I'm going to invest behind it. I felt like that's what my parents did for me. When I was really excited about something, they were willing to invest behind it. Um, but they weren't going to push me. They weren't going to like force me to go play baseball or take these lessons or do these things to try to be good. So it has definitely crossed the line in a lot of ways um the obsession with d1 sucks because what ends up happening is like kids feel bad if they're not gonna be able to go d1 lose interest in the thing um a lot of kids go d1 that shouldn't and they go and they never play i mean frankly i could have gone to an ivy league um baseball school and been like one of the best players on the team gotten a ton more attention gotten to pitch a lot more um that's not what I wanted to do. I really wanted the challenge and I wanted to go to the place where I felt like I would be really pushed because that's my mentality. A lot of kids should go to like, they should go D3 and be the best player on the team and get tons of coaching attention and be able to develop because they're getting a lot of attention versus going and being a, you know, walk on just to be able to say they're going to D1 and never getting to sniff the field. What good does that do? It's like, yeah, great. I got to do the Twitter or Instagram post saying you're, you know, humble and blessed to go to whatever <laughs> school. And then, then what? Like you were never there. You never yeah. got to experience the joys of the team. The, you know, your teammates, you're never as close with because you're not traveling with the team on the road. And um, it's just a tough road when that that's all you're focused on. And it again goes to that whole like when then thing. Like you think you're going to be happy when you get to put the tweet out and 500 people like it or whatever the thing is, you know, people flexing on social media around it. The reality of those D1 schools is like it's a job, man. And if you're if you have the job and you still have all the hours and you're not getting the reward because you're not getting to play and you're not getting to have the fun and actually getting to like experience the competition it sucks. I mean, I did that. Like most of my freshman year, I didn't play and it's terrible. It's like a real mental grind to be able to do that. Um, so I think the obsession is tough and, uh, removing that and just focusing on like, where am I going to go that I am going to be able to thrive academically and athletically and really focusing on the academic and focusing on the people that you're going to be around academically is the most important. In my opinion, with anything in life, it's so much more important to fall in love with the process of the thing rather than the outcome of the thing. And I and the reason that sparks is because I think so many people are addicted to the feeling of running X time or making X national meet or for baseball, making whatever all-star team, but they aren't actually in love with the process of the day-to-day -day grind of throwing the pitches, of lacing up your shoes and going for the easy miles. How do you think you would teach someone to fall in love with the process? If you were the coach of your son's baseball or cross-country team one day, what would be some things you would try to instill in the athletes to help them to fall in love with the right things? I don't think you can teach it. I think there are certain things that you're going to love the process with and certain things that you aren't. Um, I 
I fell in love with running uh, because of the fact that I felt like it was an escape from everything in my life for however long I was out there. And not that I felt a need to escape, but because the world gets noisy. And being able to go for a run and just be alone with your thoughts, whether it's pouring rain or whether it's like bright sunshine and humid, is one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. And I had never run. I hated running growing up because in baseball, running was punishment. And I had always associated it that way. I had like PTSD with running because it was like what you did when you got in trouble with in college. I had never probably run more than like three miles in my life. You would have had to pay me a lot of money to go run. <laughs> and then in March of this year, um, you know, I had this neighbor who was really, he's a fitness influencer, you know, big, uh, big guy that loved running. And he was like, oh, come out for a run with me. And I was like, oh man, give me a break. This is going to be awful. And all of a sudden I found this peace in my own mind that I had like, just not had in my life you know we had a young kid it's like when do you get to just be in your own head and in your own thoughts and so I very quickly knew oh my god I love this process and I set ambitious goals around it I wanted to run the sub three hour marathon I want to do a whole bunch of things with times because I think it's fun to push myself to get better but I really just loved being out there there's plenty of things in my life where I have not liked the process right like I you couldn't when I was working in finance you couldn't teach me to like the process around some of the stuff we were doing is why I had to quit because I wasn't ever going to like it. And there were people that did like it who were always going to be better than me. That's the thing you need to realize too, is like if the person you are competing against loves the process, you are never going to beat them in the long run. You might beat them in the short run. Like I might be able to beat you in a race. Uh, if, if I just like the time, I just want to run a sub five minute mile. and like, I'm going to sprint and go all out because I can grip my teeth and I might beat you in that one race. But you're telling me that, like, if you really love it, you're not going to beat me over the next five years if I hate running? Hell no. I mean, there's no chance, right? It's like um, the person who loves climbing is going to climb much higher than the person who just wants to get the view from the summit. Point blank. Because they love it. They're going to do everything. They're going to get better at it. They're going to research. They're going to, like, learn about all the recovery techniques. Everything about it, they are going to get better while this person is just focused on whatever the goal is. So I don't think you can teach it. Like, I, I don't I don't think I can teach my son to love the process around X, Y, or Z. He's going to naturally be drawn to the process around certain things. And my job is to make sure that he is empowered to go do those things, to, like, push him a little bit to make sure that he continues to drive and to just be there to support him in whatever that is, whether it's drama or whether it's singing or whether it's baseball or running, whatever it is, my job as a parent is to support whatever that that natural uh, that natural inclination is. Okay. So with that in mind, how would you help someone to pick the right games, the games that they're actually passionate about the journey rather than just the yeah. outcome? What feels easy? I mean, like when you're doing it, what just feels like air, like there's nothing to it versus what do you feel like you're needing to force yourself to go do on a daily basis? Now and then you're all you're still going to feel like crap and you're going to need to drive yourself to do the thing. And, and that's important. Discipline is important. But what just feels fun? Like what has that airy sensation to it? Today, I mean, I, I feel like I worked my way from a job that felt like really gritty every single day to something that I feel like the most time I'm kind of skipping to work. Like I feel really excited to get to do things. I mean, I love that I get to do something like this and call it work. You probably love getting to have conversations with interesting people around running that um, you would have nerded out on and you would have done that for free. And now you're getting paid to do it. That's amazing. Um, 
you just have to find those things that you feel naturally drawn to. And the reality is that we talk about it with sports and that's easy. Like, you know, what sports you're kind of drawn to where you feel like the practice is really fun for you. The, um, I think it's Plutarch, uh, the philosopher, uh, Plutarch said that the Spartans, the Spartan warriors were the only people in the world who war was actually a respite from their practice. So war was actually an escape <laughs> from the training that they were doing. And they love because they loved and were so immersed in the craziness of their training that war was actually like the break when they would go they, when they would go to war. Like the game was actually the break from practice because they loved practice so much. The best runners you've ever encountered on your show, anyone you've ever uh, you know interacted with, I guarantee those like ten by eight hundred, four by four hundred that like most people would just like puke even looking at the program. They probably had some like weird sickly sensation yep. of love I for that workout that, yeah and you're never gonna beat that person again it's like I, I get so i get so excited to be around people like that about whatever it is like i don't care whether it's running i don't care if it's something i'm into it's just fun for me to talk to people that feel that way about anything um so that i mean like, i just i have so many thoughts on this because i think you can't you can't force it and when you think about work like as you transition to the next phase of your life beyond sports, beyond your youth, the work side of it, you have to open your mind to the idea that you can literally make money doing anything. When I was a kid, I thought the only ways to make money were like investing and, you know, going to an investment bank or being a consultant. <laughs> I basically thought there were three ways to make money. I was like, I could be an investment banker, I could be a consultant at McKinsey, or I could be, you know, a investor, like a venture or private equity hedge fund. And then I quit. And I realized that I knew people making money in the most bizarre ways possible. I mean, you're making money off doing a podcast about running. Like, that's that would have been ridiculous <laughs> to me. It's like, right. oh, he just likes running. He started this podcast. Now he's making six figures. Like, that's crazy, right? We live in a world where you can literally make money doing anything. So expand your mind to all of the things you're interested in. Because in general, I would be willing to wager a decent amount of money that if you are obsessed with something, you can find a way to make money around that obsession. I think the thing there, though, is so many people, specifically in a society today of instant gratification, so many people will not engage with delayed gratification. And I guarantee you've heard this statistic, but it's one of my favorites to share. 90% of podcasts don't make it past three episodes. And then of the 10% that survives, 90% of those quit after 20 episodes. And so if you make it to 21 episodes, you're in the top 1% of podcasters all time. So even with that, even if someone is passionate about something, very few are actually willing to go the distance to see the results. Like I didn't make a single cent off of the podcast until two and a half years in. And now in this third year, yeah, I'm like close to six figures, but I needed to make it to year three and put all that work in to see the results. So how would and you advise someone on like engaging with delayed gratification? Because I think there's a difference between passion and passion over the long run. And I think that's what separates the good from the great and the people who make it and the people that don't. Everything you want in life is on the other side of something that sucks. Everything. doesn't matter what it is. It's like golden rule for life, whatever you want to call it. Everything you want in life is on the other side of something that sucks. That suck might be three years of no one listening to your podcast. That suck might be 
a hundred really hard workouts. It might be a bunch of plain meals because you're trying to lose a bunch of weight. Um, might be hundreds of hours of focused work. Whatever it is, it's going to be something that sucks and the thing you want is on the other side of it. And you have to be willing to endure whatever that suck is and get a little bit better along the way. Like track and adjust along the way to get a little bit better each day. Because the piece that we don't talk about often and like every podcast, every business book, everyone misses is that survivorship bias is unbelievably rife in these things. Um, there's a story that I absolutely love. Uh, World War II, um, they were trying to figure out how to like reinforce the planes that were coming back. Uh, basically, like all these planes were going out and getting shot up in battle in World War II, and they wanted to reinforce the planes in strategic areas in order to make sure that they survived these battles better. And they looked at where the bullet holes were on the planes that had come back, and they were like, "Well, all the bullet holes are on, uh, you know, are on the wings and and on the tail, and so we should reinforce those areas." And there was this young statistician named Abraham Wald who said that's going to be a terrible mistake. And what he pointed out was that. That was all the seen evidence. That was the stuff that was coming back, the planes. But the unseen evidence was the planes that didn't make it back, the ones that got shot down. And so what his point was, was the bullet holes that were hitting the tail and the wings that you were seeing were actually the ones that were survivable. But the unsurvivable bullet holes were on the other areas, the planes that hadn't made it back. And so they reinforced the engine and the other areas that they didn't see bullet holes all over. And that actually led to like thousands of lives being saved. There was this massive survivorship bias because you were only learning from the survivors. So when we talk about podcasts and like podcast success as an example, we always point at the examples of the person that uh, endured the three years of no one listening to their podcast and then they made it. And so it sounds great. We're like, oh yeah, great. But there were a lot of people that tried for two years and then it never worked out. So to me, when I think about those things, the piece I think is really important is it's not just about enduring and continuing to pound your head into a wall. It's about pounding to your head into a wall a little bit smarter than you did yesterday. Like I might have a brick wall that I know I need to get through because this is the thing that sucks is getting through the brick wall and the gold is on the other side of it. Well, if I start pounding my head into a wall in one spot and I don't feel a single even like tiny budge, I should probably try a different area on the wall to find like the structurally weak point. If I don't, I might just pound my head into a wall for three years until I die and not have made a single dent. But if I like say, okay, what have I learned? Like I've learned some information. Now I'm going to move to this area and I'm going to start chipping away at it. Now I feel a little bit of movement. Okay, maybe this is the area. Oh, now I feel a little movement here. Let me continue to chip away. It's getting a little bit smarter at the way that you are enduring because that's actually what allows you to get to the other end. Like doing the same workout for three years when you're not seeing even the <laughs> tiniest amount of progress, that's not very smart, right? Like that's not hey, well, yeah, I need to grind for three years to get to the other thing. No, that's being kind of dumb. Right. You need to like learn, yeah, with your podcast as a perfect example of this, I'm sure along the way you got a little bit smarter about what worked, how to reach out to people, how to have a great conversation, and you were iterating. So while you couldn't see the progress maybe in terms of downloads yet, you were getting a little bit better at it and you were feeling it as you went. That's what allows the survivors to actually survive. It's not just the enduring. It's like the enduring a little bit smarter every single day. What are your thoughts on stopping and how do you think that related to your baseball career and stepping away from the sport? Yeah, you have to know when to quit. Um, and this is something no one ever wants to talk about. It's the reason 
you know, any book on quitting uh, is never going to be as successful as a book like on grit and having resilience and sticking it out. Annie Duke, who's an amazing author uh, who wrote one of my favorite books, which is Thinking in Bets, wrote a book called Quit this year all about basically this idea of like having a criteria for when to quit something. Um, and I do think it's important. I think it's important to just know like know when to fold them, right? Like know when to hold them, know when to fold them. And having that criteria in your mind at the beginning is often the most important thing. She talks about this in the book, a quit, quitting criteria, like knowing, okay, what new information would I have to glean over the next six months in order to know that this is not the right approach? I do think you have to give yourself enough time before pulling the trigger on that though. Um, saying like, oh, I'm gonna try this for a month and if it doesn't really work, I'm gonna quit it's hard for anything to really work in a month. You really need to give stuff time in order to have a better view on it. Um, you know, there's this amazing, I'm going to blank on the name of this. So, um, Google has this internal like moonshot factory called X and it's where they work on the most like incredible complicated problems within the company, like big moonshot things. And they have this thing called the monkeys and pedestals mental model that they talk about there, which is this idea that uh, say that you have to train a monkey. So like you, you want to have a monkey uh, juggle flaming torches while standing on top of a pedestal. And there's two pieces to that problem. There's training a monkey to juggle flaming torches. And then there's building a pedestal. Building a pedestal has been done for thousands and thousands of years. It's very easy. You know exactly how you can do it. It's not that hard of a problem to solve. Teaching a monkey to juggle flaming torches is a really challenging problem to solve. And so their point with this mental model is there's no point in worrying about the pedestal if you don't think you can actually train the monkey to juggle flaming torches. You're just wasting time on the pedestal. And so the point with it is you should figure out whether you can do the hardest part of the problem first. And if you can't, if you determine that you cannot train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches, you should just stop. That's when you should quit. It shouldn't, it's not a problem that's worth solving because it doesn't matter. Like the pedestal is irrelevant. It's just the hard, hard part. So when you go into a problem, the lesson here is whatever it is you're facing, figure out if you can do that hardest part. And if you learn over the course of three or six months that you can't do that hard part, it's probably worth changing course. I think this quote from James Clear goes right in line with what you were talking there, and I want to get your thoughts on it. James said, do not confuse things that are hard with things that are valuable. Many things in life are hard. Just because you are giving a great effort does not mean you are working toward a great result. Make sure that the mountain is worth climbing. Yeah, I I mean, I couldn't agree more. I love James. James is also just a great human being uh, outside of being an incredible author and, and thinker. Um, the worst thing in the world is climbing to the top of a mountain and realizing you climbed the wrong one. Uh, it was the reason that I switched career tracks. Like I was halfway up this mountain. I saw what the top looked like and I realized I didn't want that. I didn't want to, I didn't want the prize for what, what the thing was. Um, so being aware, I mean, the way I define it is at all times you want to know what the game is that you're playing and whether you want the prize for winning that game. Because if the answer to either one of those questions is no, like you don't know what the game is that you're playing or you don't want the prize for that game, you shouldn't be playing it. Like it should no longer be the thing you're doing. You need to be able to clearly define what it is and whether you want the thing that comes with winning it. Um, yeah. Enough said. I yeah. love it. I love it. Yeah. What have been some of the most 
pivotal moments in your life? You've mentioned the career switch a few times. I'm assuming that's one of them. But when you think back to the past 32 years of your life, are there any significant standout moments of like switching tracks that stand out that you think have made you the person you are today? Yeah, I'd say there's two. Um, you know, one was when I could no longer play baseball. Um, I Identity is the the common thing that ties us all together. We're all ultimately searching for where we fit in in the world and what we feel our identity is. It's the reason so many athletes really struggle mentally after their sport is taken away from them because their identity was tied up in the sport. And everything about them their whole life, they'd been patted on the back for being so great at this thing. It consumes them mentally, physically, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you reach an age and it's no longer your thing. And you have to go find a new job or you have to go find a new identity. That's really, really challenging. I was no different. My whole childhood, baseball had been my identity. And my relationship with my dad in particular was really built around my rise in baseball. Um, you know, he was always the one to take me to all my lessons, come to my practices, came to all my games, cheer me on. So much of what I felt our bond was was built around this sport. So I was at Stanford my last year and I was hurt for the like last year of that just like terrible shoulder pain awful awful wouldn't wish it on anyone um and i realized i basically got to the point where i realized that it was time to quit um i wasn't going to make a career out of it and it was too much just the stress and the constant pain and all the pills i was having to take and all the stuff i was having to go through to continue to endure it no longer made sense and it was taking away from my life and all these other areas i told the coaches and then the first call i had to make was to my dad to let him know and it's such a formative moment in my life because of what his response was to it. So I called him and I was so nervous to tell him that I was planning to hang it up because again, in my mind, this was what connected us. And I was so worried that he would be disappointed, um, sad, all of these things. And I told him and he said, I don't care. Like, I, I don't care that you're moving on. And I was like, oh, are you disappointed? He's like, I don't care because I know that whatever you do next, you're going to put all of this energy that you've put in over the last 20 years of your life into baseball into that. And I am so excited to be there for you to cheer you on and whatever that next thing is. And I can't, I mean, I still get emotional even thinking about it. Like I can't imagine hearing a better thing from your father than that. Uh, and he has lived up to every single word of what he said. I mean, when I ran my marathon a month ago, my dad flew out, surprised me, and was standing at the finish line of my marathon, which is, like, so stupid, right? Like, it's a stupid marathon. Like, it's some silly running goal. There was no reason for him to do that. But it's who he was, and it's the values that he embodied as a father and as a, as a parent. And that just means the world to a kid to have someone in their life that is like that, that is just going to support them and cheer them on and whatever it is that they choose to go do. Um, so that for me, I mean, still to this day, like I get chills thinking about that conversation and how impactful it was on my life. Do you think your dad's influence is why you were so intentional with Roman? Like even on social media, you can tell that you spend hours with him every day. You go watch the trucks with him every morning. <laughs> you go on walks with him. Uh, you buy him stuffed animals on trips. Do you think that comes from your dad's influence on you? And just what is your thought process behind fatherhood? What are some attributes you're trying to embody? Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, my my father was the best dad I can imagine having. Um, he 
I think embodied all of the values that he didn't feel he had from his father. So I, I, I mm. in general, think that people either uh, amplify uh, what they feel their parents did well or reject and go in the other direction of what they think their parents did poorly. And unfortunately, in, in his case, um, his father didn't accept when he wanted to marry my mom. So my father's white, American, my mother's from India. And when my dad wanted to marry my mom, his dad didn't accept it and said, you have to choose between her or us. And my dad walked out the door. And to this day, I've never met his parents. Uh, he has four siblings I've never met, first cousins I've never met. Unbelievable, terribly sad thing. Um, but I can't imagine like a dad saying that to their kid, right? I mean, it's like crazy over race, like over something that silly. It just, it seems so ridiculous today. Maybe in 1982, times were a little different, interracial marriage, maybe. But even then, like, it was not, it wasn't the 1920s or something like that, right? It was 1982. So it's crazy to me. <clears throat> but I think as a result of that, my dad really took it upon himself to be this unbelievably supportive figure. And he's that way with my sister, I, me and my sister. He's exactly that way with my sister, cheering her on and whatever she's doing. He's like the most supportive person. Um, and I just wanted to embody those same values that I feel like he had with with us um, and build that same feeling of connection and bond that I feel like I have with him, with my son. Um, I'm also very fortunate in that I do have an unbelievably flexible life. Like I control my own schedule entirely. I have, no one's telling me what to do on a daily basis. So I can be around. I can take him to go see the trucks every single morning. I can like go to the playground with him and my wife in the afternoon. Um, all of those things I really want to take advantage of like, because I'm very grateful for them. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I'd continued on the track I was on. Um, so, I mean, I just, I also just think uh, we need to more comprehensively embrace parenting and being great dads uh, and being great moms. I think in general, like for dads, it's always been this masculine thing of like, oh, I'm going to, you know, be the tough guy, dad, you know, provider, all of these things like associations. And um, I'm like a mushy dad, right? I get emotional at every single thing. Like I, I am highly, highly invested in my son's life. I want to be around. I'm happy to do anything with him. And I think that more of us need to embrace that as this like new version of masculinity. Like I'm happy to go lift heavy shit with the boys and like go on crazy runs and do a bunch of hard stuff. But I also want to be able to like play around with my kid and use my little baby voice that I use with him <laughs> for whatever reason, like all of a sudden comes out as soon as I'm around him. Um, and just like embrace that dichotomy rather than feeling like I need to be one or the other. How do you flip the off switch when you're with him? How do you, just turn off social media, turn Hard. off whatever business venture and fully be in the present moment where your feet are with him. Uh, it's very hard. I don't think I'm great at it. Um, I've done better with setting boundaries where, you know, certain times of the evening where like I'm shut off, my phone's away, et cetera. Um, it's hard in particular for me because part of what I want to do with my platform is inspire other dads and other people to really embrace these moments with their kids. And that means sharing a lot of my life, right? Like you, I, I share a lot of my actual day-to-day -day life of like time that I'm spending with him, things we're doing, fun stuff, laughs, you know, all of those things. That means having my phone in certain ways to like film things, do different stuff. Um, and it's a balance. It's a balance of like, okay, but I don't want to be sitting behind a screen. I don't want him to see me staring down at a screen all day. Um, and balancing that against, I do want to inspire millions of people 
to do that and to take it more seriously and to be really present. And I think I'm starting to do that. Like, I, I mean, I reach that many people. I get tons of messages every single day from people saying how they're inspired to be a you know different parent or they're excited about being a parent because of the content they've seen me share. It was so much of the narrative around parenting was negative for forever. It was like, oh yeah, like, you know, get your sleep now or, you know, uh, you know, hope you had your fun, whatever, all these things. I am like, I'm at least twice as happy. Like my average level of happiness is at least twice as high now than it was before he was born. Like the daily joy of just seeing him learn and grow is totally incomprehensible to me from before I had kids. I did like, I'm a totally different human. My like brain chemistry. Is it hard? Absolutely. There's terrible, like challenging things. I don't get to travel as much, you know, like we're not traveling as much. We don't go on as many dates. Like there's plenty of things that are trade-offs. But like seeing your kid learn a stupid word or, you know, figure something out with their hands, I, there's just literally nothing in the world like that that will bring you that kind of joy into your life. On a similar line of Roman, the, yeah. the family sort of things, I'm very interested about this. Way too young to be considering it. Yeah, you're way too anyone. young. <laughs> but uh, I'm curious. I hear all the time in your circle of, um, you know, just inspirational figures and people who talk on deeper subjects that the person you marry is the most important decision you'll ever make. What are your thoughts on that question and prompt? And what are some ways that you tried to answer it and, you know, find the right person? Yeah, fact. Uh, that is definitely true. Uh, I mean, the person you choose to partner with in life and marriage is the traditional way that that's done will dramatically impact the course that your life takes and will probably govern most of the joy or misery that your life has. Um, I would say the most important piece of advice I would give to my younger self around finding the right person is, I guess there's two pieces. One is focus from the get-go on deeper levels of attraction than physical. Physical attraction is great. I am extremely physically attracted to my wife. That's a great thing. Eventually, you're probably not going to be physically attracted to this person that you're partnering with. That's time. Like we're all going to be old and we're going to be gross and like bags of wrinkles and just like not looking great. Um, but it's also just like novelty wears off, right? Like the the uh, feeling of like crazy lustful physical attraction is not necessarily going to be there forever. Maybe it will be and you get lucky, but you shouldn't count on it. There has to be levels of attraction that go well beyond the physical in order to build a lasting connection and partnership with someone. It has to be that there's emotional attraction, spiritual attraction. Uh, you have to be connected on much deeper levels. And if more people thought about that at the outset, they would waste a lot less time along the way. The second piece is focus much more on growing than on the falling. Um it's easy to focus on falling in love and falling in love with someone. That's again, like the lustfulness of the moment. And you're so connected with someone. It's the honeymoon period that comes with that and the new thing. The much more impactful thing is who can you grow with? Like who can you change with? Who are you willing to crawl through the mud with to get to the other side? Um, because that's the thing that life actually is. Like most of life is not this honeymoon period of the beautiful Instagram worthy moments on vacation and the beautiful dinners and the you know sexy moments that you see people share on social media. Most of life is sitting on your ass on the couch doing nothing. 
And you have to love doing that with this person in order to build a great life with them. You have to love doing absolutely nothing with this person. Before I got married, one of my friends asked me how I knew that Elizabeth, my, my wife, was the one. And I said, because I love doing absolutely nothing with her. I love sitting on the couch, watching some stupid TV show, not talking, and just sitting there with her. And I could do that for the rest of my life and be perfectly content, happy, and fulfilled. Because she's the type of person that I just want to be around and be with, and I love her energy. And if you focus on that, if you focus on finding that person, you're always going to be okay. Switching gears here, going back to something you shared earlier that you had never run more than three miles heading into March. Your friend said, hey, come on, I'll run with me. How in the world, six months later-ish, did you run a 257 marathon? Take oh, the people through this journey and Painfully, painfully. <laughs> um, so this friend of mine is this guy, Brian Mazza, who some people might know that are listening. He's a you know, pretty big fitness influencer. Um, and randomly found out that he lives like a quarter mile away from me. We, uh, I never knew who he was. He didn't know who I was. I live in this town for maybe a year and a half. And then a common friend was like, hey, uh, there's this guy that I just met. He lives, I think, in your town. He's really into cold plunging. He's really into <laughs> sauning. He's like, I was like, oh, it's so weird. I didn't know anyone else in my town was like that. So we get together. He's like, oh, you should come run with me. I'd never run. So I go out on a run. I mentioned earlier, I start sort of like, finding this unbelievable peace on the road um and the like monotonous sound of your feet hitting and the like meditative state that it kind of sends you into all of a sudden running went from being this thing that i hated into something that i both found really peace inducing and something where i was finally getting better at something physically i've lifted my whole life i've always been into training and lifting around baseball originally and then it became a hobby but i'm not getting much stronger now at this stage of my life unless i go on like trt or steroids i'm probably not going to get much stronger just like it's probably not going to happen right um but running i like went you know I, st I started running and it was like hard for me to run an eight minute mile and it was like you know high heart rate and then like a couple weeks later, um, I ran a half, I just like pit for, for, I was on a whim at a wedding and there was this half marathon and I ran it. And, um, I think I ran like 138 in this half marathon. And again, I don't think I'd ever run more than like seven miles when I ran out and ran this half marathon. And I was like, oh wow, that felt good. I was starting to get better. And so then I started getting the little dopamine hit of like, you're loving something and you're getting better at it in a like very clear progression. Like I could see it in the numbers that were coming out. And that for me was like the trigger of, it's like the Holy grail when you have those two things where you're like, you're loving the process and you're getting the dopamine hits from getting better at something. You better watch out. Cause like whatever the goal is, <laughs> I'm going to go smoke that thing. So that, that was probably like, um, end of February, early March, when like all of those things happened. And by the end of March, I said to Brian, I was like, I'm going to run a sub three hour marathon within six months of starting here. And he was like, all right, man. And to his credit, he, um, he was like, yeah, you are, you probably are going to do that. Cause he had kind of started to see all of those things clicking with me. So we just started training and I hired a coach, this guy, Jeremy Miller, um, here in Austin. Oh, is he cool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's amazing. If, if, you know, if people don't follow him, he creates great running content. So I had started to kind of get nerding out on running. I was, I was watching a bunch of your videos with all the high school runners that I <laughs> loved, like Simeon and Connor and the two Stanford kids, Lex and Leo. So I was starting to get like nerding out on it, learning, okay, what works, what doesn't, what shoes should I have? And fortunately, um, 
you know, I'm creating content around it. So it's sort of like part of my business. I was writing about it, creating content around it. And I just ran a lot, man. I mean, I probably put in 1200 ish miles over the course of the six months and, uh, I went out and did it. So September 10th, I ran your hometown, Erie, Pennsylvania, very flat marathon, although it was 95% humidity, which I would like, would not recommend running a marathon. <laughs> it was miserable. Um, but I ran 257.31, got it done, nearly died. I was on like a I was on like a 248 pace through 22 miles, and I didn't uh, know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I blew out. Hot. I went out hot. I um, I literally like, you get all the advice before you run a marathon, right? Like everyone says, go out easy. You know, go out slightly slower than your pace that you're trying to hit, and then you know, speed up, run a negative split, like run a beautiful race. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. And then I like, I go out. You know, I'm planning to go out at like 6:45 ish pace, and I go run the first mile at 6:45. Then I was like, oh man, I'm feeling good. And like literally, like miles two through 16, I'm like in the 620s every single mile or something like that. And then, and then mile 21, I was like started cramping up, and I basically like hop skipped from mile 22 to 26.2 and got it done. Um, started to see God, as they say. Oh man, I. Uh, I wouldn't wait. I mean, a lot of people go through marathons, experience this, but like, I would not wish those final four miles on anyone. I left and I was like, I never want to do a marathon again, uh, my entire life because it was such miserable, uh, miserable pain, but I'm very, uh, I'm very glad I did it and got it done. What have you learned through this new pursuit, uh, and joy of the sport of running? Oh man, so much. Um, I think running is an amazing microcosm of life. Uh, one of the biggest learnings for me personally was that you cannot judge someone on the basis of a small sliver of information. Um, the running application of this is you can see, you see tons of people out when you're running. You're in Austin, like there's tons of runners. You run past people, people run by you. And there's this tendency in the human mind to take whatever in, tiny sliver of information we've gathered about someone and create a picture in our mind of who they are as, as a person. Running you can't do that because I might be running my tempo day and I might run past Eliud Kipchoge on his easy day running nine minute miles. And for me to sit here and be like, I'm a better runner than that right. guy is ludicrous. It's incorrect. It's logically flawed. It's ludicrous. It's laughable. Um, and the same thing applies to life. Like if I run into a person, I learn some tiny, tiny piece of information about them and now I apply it to their entire character. It's just wrong. It's called fundamental attribution error. It's just wrong. And running teaches you that you can't judge someone by what you saw with that small thing. Um, that was a really, really big one for me. Um, also just the benefit of moving slow. Uh, was a big one that I never appreciated in life. Um, and my running, like my progression towards the marathon really took a step forward when I hired a coach who forced me to run the easy days, easy, easy. Um, you know, it's like the speed paradox, move slow in order to move fast. My tendency is like, oh, if I want to run a, you know, if I want to run a marathon at a 6:45 average pace, I got to run 6:45 every single day. Like I just got to go out and just run that for as many miles as I can. And I would have gotten hurt, and it would have been really, really bad. And that kind of thing was building up. So having that awareness that you need to slow down in order to speed up is something that powerfully applies to every area of your life. I mean, you need to do that mentally. You need to do it physically. You need to do it in your work. You need to be able to slow down. And when you slow down, by the way that's when you can see the entire field and figure out where to deploy your energy. I, the example I love is like Lionel Messi playing soccer. 
he walks around the field and people go nuts. They're like, why is that guy walking everywhere he goes? Well, he's not really walking. He's sort of observing and creating this map of everything, he creates this in- incredible vision of the field. And when he goes, he goes at 110% in the perfect way, in the perfect place. And that's only because he was going slow so that he could observe and see everything. Um, so that's like, that I think is a really powerful insight for how you think about work too. Is like, if you're moving fast all the time, you're going to miss where the gold was. You're just going to be running around. You're going to miss that there was these incredible opportunities. If you had slowed down, you would have been able to identify them. Like for you, that's why I said before we started this podcast, we were talking about your goals for it. I said, just like, don't go too fast because you're going to miss something. Slowing down allows you to see like, oh, the real opportunity is not for this to go from one to $2 million with this like, you know, really obvious way. It's the non-obvious way that takes this from one to 10. And you're going to miss that if you're so focused on going on the, you know, going on the quick path. Um, So I think about that a lot with running too. You talking about that reminded me of the principle that I absolutely love in relation to running, but it also applies to life. So feel free to respond however you want to. The the principle is the quickest fix is the longest path. Mm. I like that a lot. I've never heard that actually. Um, It's true. And it's the reason that like, it's a funny thing, right? You think um, everyone talks about like, oh, I'm going to 10x this or 10x that. You know, it's like, oh, you get 10x better or whatever. Uh, it's like a meme now on, on social media. Um, 10x is often easier than 2x because 2x requires you doing like twice as much work of the exact same thing you're doing today. Whereas 10x requires an entirely different type of thinking, an entirely non-obvious path, something where like you might deploy a tiny bit of energy into the exact right spot is the only thing that's going to allow you to 10x. You can't 10x the same way that you got to 1x. And so thinking about what is that 10x path is often the best way to approach it because that's how you actually like can deploy the little bit of energy that takes you the massive step function improvement. Kind of similar lines, but kind of shifting subjects. This is just a free flowing conversation. Please. So it came in my head. So I'll ask you about it. It was actually in a, in a previous podcast where the guest mentioned this, this great principle. And he, and he said, champions tend to be broken people. And what he said was, Champions and successful people got really, 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 really good at one thing by sacrificing almost everything else. What are your thoughts on kind of that paradox? And for you personally, how do you figure out the things that are worth sacrificing versus the things that aren't worth sacrificing? I think it's largely true. I mean, if you go read the biographies of the people that we celebrate, laud, admire in history, whether that's in business and athletics, whatever it is, a lot of them come from broken homes or have like broken relationships with their parents and or have a terrible set of relationships with the people around them in adulthood. I mean, if you look at the top Forbes, like top 25 richest people in the world, I think like 20 of them have divorces. I don't know how many of them have terrible relationships with their kids. I would guess a lot of them. Um, when you excel to the top 0.001% of one given area, you're leaving a lot of other things on the table in order to do that. It's just the reality. You can't, like, I don't think you can be Elon Musk without all of the, you know, stuff that gets lost along the way. John D. Rockefeller, you go read his biography, Titan, unbelievable, by Ron Chernow. His dad did some terrible, terrible things to him when he was a kid. His relationship with his dad was awful. 
uh, go read the Elon Musk biography by Walter Isaacson. Same thing. His dad was not a good guy and really, really broken relationship with his father. If that's what it takes to succeed at that level, you can count me out. That's just, that's my opinion on it. It's not like, to me, it's not about like, how do I manage this and like achieve at that level and keep my relationships? Um, I don't know that it's possible. I just think like in order to excel in one area to that, that level, there's a lot of other things that just have to fall out on the, on the back end. And I'm perfectly happy not achieving to that level. Uh, and having a beautiful, happy life, happy marriage, you know, great relationships with my children. I mean, I, um, the way I would define this, frankly, for me is like, I, I imagined my ideal life at age 80. I literally sat down and wrote it down exactly what I wanted to do. Like what was my ideal day at age 80? For me, it was sitting on a porch like overlooking a backyard, my wife by my side, my kids on the deck with me, spending time with me, grandkids running around in the yard, and a bunch of friends coming over to have dinner with us. And what I realized in doing that is, A, I don't care all that much about money. There was not like private jets or yachts or like it wasn't a mansion. Uh, relationships are what matter most to me in the world. This has my smiling wife, my happy kids, healthy grandkids, a bunch of friends. And what does that mean in terms of what I do today? It doesn't mean I should try to go build a $10 billion business. It means that I should be the supportive and loving husband every single day so that my wife wants to be standing by my side at age 80. It means that I need to be the type of supportive father so that my kids are going to want to be next to me when they're older, so that my grandkids are going to be in the yard playing. It means I need to be the type of loyal friend every single day so that my friends are going to want to come over and hang out. And all of those things are totally controllable on a daily basis through my actions, the things I'm doing and how I'm pursuing things on a daily basis. So that is reflected in how I'm trying to live my life. I want to work on things that I feel like are ambitious. I want to impact people. Um, the reason I create content, the reason I do all of these things is because I think I have the opportunity over the next 50 years of my life to impact positively a billion people in the world. And it sounds like a ludicrous number, and maybe it is ludicrous, but that's what I want to do. I want to positively impact, allow 1 billion people to take one tiny thing away that allows them to live a slightly better life than they otherwise would have. And maybe I make a billion dollars doing that. Maybe I make not nearly as much money doing that. But none of that really impacts this like end goal of where I want to be when I'm age 80. And so I don't care. Like it doesn't matter to me. And that's a really empowering feeling. Um, but if it requires me like, you know, if you told me you would pay me $100 million tomorrow to go work 90-hour weeks for the next five years, I would say no. And I really mean that. Like, I just, I have no desire to miss the next five years of my kid's life. Um, it's just not a trade-off I'd be willing to make. In regards to you thinking about your ideal life at age 80, for me, one of the biggest pieces of taking action has been reflecting on my death. And there was this great model. I, it may have been on a Joe Rogan podcast. I'm forgetting exactly where I got it from. But the person said, what do you want your obituary to say and then act accordingly? And I think it's such a powerful Warren way Buffett. of living. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you got you got the source there. Yeah, yeah. And so what would you say to specifically people probably under the age of 30 who I think in society today act and live as if they're never going to die? and don't actually act with the end in mind, which I think provokes a lot of good action necessary to live the best possible life. Yeah. Um, 
I, and I don't think it's about the morbid side of like thinking about dying every single day. To me, this is, um, you are writing your obituary every single day with how you act and live and behave on a daily basis. And so you actually do get to write it on a, in a, in a very real way by how you are acting. Um, I just think it's important to realize the long-term impact of the things that you are doing on a daily basis. I just went to my 10 year college reunion and it blew me away that everyone that was there was 32 years old. We're all 10 years removed from college. Some people looked 50 and some people looked 30. Why? Well, your daily habits show up on your face after 10 years. <laughs> the way that you treated yourself on a daily basis shows up on your face. The way that you treated other people shows up on your face because stress, you know, the way that you treated your body, your mind, all of those things show up on your face after a period of time. Young people don't realize that yet because it hasn't had enough time to compound positively or negatively. But the way you are behaving on a daily basis will impact you in the future. So if you're being a shitty person to your friends on a daily basis, if you're not being supportive, they're not going to be there in 10 years. If you're being shitty to your body or to your mind every day, it's not going to be there in 10 years. It's going to atrophy all of these things. If you're not taking your future seriously financially, it's not going to be there in 10 years. Like all of these things are going to be really, really bad. So it's almost like if you can't comprehend being 80 and, and being old and dying, that's fine. Think about like your five year from now self or your 10 year from now self. You should be able to comprehend that and the impact that what you're doing today is going to have on that person. So he'll... For those who don't know you, who haven't read your writing, I think I've texted you this before, but there's one of your pieces that went particularly viral. That's a, a personal favorite of mine. And it was life lessons from a thousand years mm -hmm. for your 32nd birthday. You asked several 90 year olds what advice they would give to their 32 year old selves. So I wrote down a few of my favorites from it. I'm going to read the point and I want you to elaborate in quick form, however you will. So. Point number one, uh, which stuck out to me was now and then break out the fancy China and drink the good wine for no reason at all. Stop waiting to enjoy the finer things. If tomorrow is never guaranteed, find the time to enjoy them today. Yeah, this is a this is a relatively common trope that I just think is so true. It's like, again, delayed gratification is great, but if you keep delaying gratification, you never feel gratified. Uh, and that's a terrible thing. You you want to actually, uh, you want to actually enjoy the nice things along the way and like generate those experiences with people you love. And so I think the point there is, it's not about the fancy stuff. It's about the people that you enjoy it with. Like mm. break out the fancy china and the nice wine with someone you love and like enjoy that experience with the person you love. Lesson number seven was do one good deed every single day, but never tell anyone about it. Pay for someone's coffee. Take out the trash trash without being asked let someone into your lane a little bit goes a long way yeah my grandfather told me this um when i was a kid that if you let someone in in traffic and give them a wave they're gonna go let someone in in traffic and give them a wave mm. then that person's gonna go in and you can change the world the ripple effect and i always loved that it always stuck with me that one tiny good thing changes an entire person's day and then they go and change someone else's whole day and you can really have this positive ripple effect Lesson number 10, always remind yourself that your track record for making it through bad days is perfect. It's easy to lose sight of this when you're down. Zoom out and reclaim your perspective. Yeah, everyone's been there. They, um, you know, things are going great and life is good. And then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you're in a rut 
Like you just, and it's dark and you don't know how to get out. You don't know where it is and you feel lost and reminding yourself that you always made it through to the other side of those things is a really powerful thing. I mean, I, um, there's this beautiful quote that, uh, that I heard, um, uh, a lot of people think that they've been buried when in reality they've just been planted. Mm. And that really has stuck with me over the years. Lesson number 16, you may occasionally disappoint others, but make sure to never disappoint yourself. You may let others down, but never let yourself down. Most important thing in the world. Got to keep, keep yourself in high regard in your own mind and always stay true to your word with yourself. Lesson number 17, never let a good friendship atrophy, which I think we talked about a little bit in this podcast thus far. Send the text, make the call, plan the trip. Good friendships must always be treasured. Yeah, my newest version of this is plan the trip. Um, seeing people in person, we just got our like whole baseball group back together for this 10-year reunion, and it was unbelievable. And it came together because I just booked a house and just told people, like, everyone's welcome to come stay. Don't worry about paying for it. Just come, like, please be there. And when you just take the initiative to plan that trip and people show up, you'll, like, you'll never regret spending the money on that kind of stuff. I love lesson 22. It makes me feel like a kid again when I read through it. If it's raining on a warm summer oh, yeah. evening, go outside and dance in it. You won't remember the muddy clothes and the ruined shoes. You'll only remember the laughter and joy. Yeah, I mean, life in general, you only remember the messy moments. This is just like in, you know, we, we all stress over the vacation, missing the flight or the vacation that went massively awry or like the disastrous thing. But that's the stuff we remember later. We don't remember the like perfect, smooth, easy day. You remember the weird, muddy day. And so it's like finding space to actually create those muddy moments in your life is a beautiful thing. Lesson number 23, and I feel this one particularly prominently for me, not going to college, taking risks. I think it's so true. Taking no risk is the biggest risk you can take. Regret from inaction is always more painful than regret from action. Yeah, it's true. You, you never regret the things that you do. Um, maybe that's a blanket statement, but it's in, in my experience, it's very true um, because you went for it. Like, what are you going to regret? You went for the thing. Yeah, it might not work out. It might have been a failure, but you went for it. So you can't feel bad about taking the action. When I read through that one, I thought of this quote that I think perfectly lines up with it. And the quote is super simple to the point. If you risk nothing, you risk even more. What are your thoughts on that? Completely agree. It's yeah. um, It's been my own experience, right? Like I left the, uh, I left the safe path to go and do this and I couldn't be any happier about it. Lesson 39, smile and say good morning to the strangers on the street. This has somehow become old-fashioned, but everyone benefits when more people do it. Most bizarre thing in the world to me, walking around New York City, you say hi to someone on the street, and they, like, give you a mean face, <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing? You're, like, a weirdo for doing that. Um, I love – it's why I love traveling to parts of the country where that, that's still normal. Like, small towns, it's so nice. People say hello to each other, smile. Um, it's just about maintaining your humanity in a world that wants to make you like behind a screen, like look up at people in the face, say hello to people. Um, nothing bad comes from that. I could deconstruct your, your quotes and your posts all day, but, um, there's, there's one other post that I'd love to deconstruct with you. And I also, I'm sure a lot of my audience hasn't heard of you. And, and so I think this is a cool opportunity to kind of give them an inside look at how good of a writer you are and some of the subjects you write on. But one of your other posts that particularly stood out to me that I thought was an interesting change in perspective was the time billionaire. Mm. Um, and you said, quote, to me, being a time billionaire isn't necessarily about having the actual time 
but about having the awareness of the pressure nature of the time you do have. It's about embracing the shortness of life and finding joy in the ordinary daily moments of beauty, end quote. What are your thoughts on this post? So a time billionaire, for people that don't know what this means, is the idea that everyone thinks about money billionaires, right? You think about having a billion dollars, but when you're 20 years old, you're 18, like when you're 20 years old, you have roughly 2 billion seconds left in your life. A billion seconds is about 30 years. So say you're gonna live until you're 80, you have about 2 billion seconds left in your life. When you're 50, you have a billion seconds left. But you don't relate to yourself in that way. You don't think about the fact that you are literally rich with time when you're young. Most people spit on their time. They take on things um, that are a waste of their time. They use it on mindless activities, dumb things that you're just like literally your most precious asset is withering away. And so that's what this whole concept is about. It's about realizing the precious nature of time, realizing that time is your most important asset. And when you're young, you don't care. You don't think about it. But when you're old, you would give anything to have more time. Warren Buffett is 95-ish years old. He's worth $110 billion. And you would not trade lives with him. He could come to you and be like, hey, trade lives with me. You can have all my money and have all this. You would say, hell no, man. Get out of here, right? Like not a single one of your listeners. I don't know how old all your listeners are. My, my guess, and I'd be willing to bet, not a single one of them would trade lives with Warren Buffett because why would you possibly trade the next 60 years of your life for his $100 billion? So you realize then, okay, then this time has value to me like a dollar figure of value. But you don't think about that in the in the moment. You're not thinking about the fact that you were so rich with time. Um, and so it is, it's like a call to action to just appreciate and understand the value of all of this time that you have ahead of you and treat it with respect. There's a great quote that I thought of in relation to this post. I think it's either from Chris Williamson or Alex Formosi, one of the two. And they said, we trade the thing we want, time, for the thing which is supposed to get it, money. We give up time to make money so that we can finally have more time when we have enough money. <laughs> we give up happiness to achieve success so that we can finally enjoy happiness when we achieve enough success. What are your thoughts on that? That's 100% true. It's like the entire idea of what we said at the beginning of like you're deferring something to get to right. whatever the other side is. And the reality is like by doing that, by losing sight of the beauty of this moment that you have and not enjoying whatever this is, uh, you're leaving yourself and putting yourself into this vicious cycle that ultimately just leads you into the grave. Um, so again, it all goes back to find the things in the moment that you love doing. It's great to go make money. It's great to go build great businesses, take care of your family, do all these things that money enables, but try to find the way of doing it that you love doing along the way. Don't, you know, like don't assume that you're going to be happy after you get to some number. I have way more miserable friends, by the way, that have made like $30 million than my friends who just have a stable job and like are around their family all the time and have, you know, a great simple life. Those friends of mine are actually much happier than my <laughs> friends who have sold companies for millions and millions of dollars. I, I don't know why, but it's just the reality of the situation. I think this quote is from one of the Stoics, I think Epictetus, but he said, do not spoil what you have by desiring mm. what you have not. Remember that what you now have was once among the things you only hoped for. For you as someone who's, you know, a very high achiever, someone who's striving to do things, how do you stay grounded and appreciate how far you've come? Mental time travel. Have you heard of that concept? I don't think so. Uh, mental time travel is this idea that you can basically zoom out from where you are in the present and look at where you are from either your younger self or your older self. And 
zooming out and looking at where you are today from the perspective of five years ago self is an unbelievably powerful tool for gratitude, for appreciating where you are in the moment. For me, what it does is it makes me realize just how far I've come and it makes me realize how my my 25-year-old self would be blown away by where I am in life by the loving relationships, by the success that I feel like I've had. In the moment, it's very hard to realize that. In the moment, I'm like, oh, I haven't done enough. I need to be doing more. I need to you know, grow more, do this more, more business success. But when you zoom out and you think about it, you're like, oh my God, look at where we are. Like, Look at this life we've built. Look at this stuff that we have. Look at all this great fortune. So doing that regularly is an unbelievably, unbelievably life-changing thing. Two of the sayings that I don't know if you've coined, but you say them a lot, and I want your your quick take on them. You say, uh, rent is due, <laughs> and the other one you say a lot, I feel like, is closed mouths don't get fed. Yeah. I don't know if I coined either. I've definitely popularized both, though. Um, I doubt. I tend to think that, like, no one has coined anything like Aristotle probably said it. Yeah, all yeah. Like Winston Churchill or whatever. Yeah, I mean, everything is like Mark Twain or Aristotle <laughs> or like Einstein. I don't know. There's like three people that have everything misquoted to them. Um, but uh, rent is due is just this idea that like you have to pay your dues every single day. And uh, I'm a big believer that you have to do hard things. As I said earlier, everything you want in life is on the other side of something that sucks. That means getting cold. That means getting hot. That means moving fast. That means lifting heavy shit. It means having tough conversations. It means being present. It means being focused. All of those things are hard, and everything good comes on the other side of doing those hard things. That is rent that you have to pay every single day. And I talk about that on social media because I really believe it. I need, I believe more people need to embrace that mentality of like, do the little thing every single day. It doesn't have to be showing up and paying your entire month's rent in a given day. It's like, do the tiny daily deposit that compounds positively in your life. Um, that is why I always say that. Closed mouths don't get fed. If you want something and you've done the work to deserve it, go and ask for it. The number of people that are held back by their unwillingness to ask for the thing that they have earned is incredible, and it's really sad. I have always been willing to ask for the thing, and I've been blown away by the conversion rate of success on just asking. Like Most of the time, the person that you're asking just doesn't know that you wanted it. Like If it's your boss, if it's your partner, if it's whoever it is, they just don't know that you want the thing. And so actually just opening your mouth and going and asking for it is easily the biggest unlock that young people can have in their life. As we sit here today, what excites you the most? What gets you out of bed um, besides paying the rent of the cold plunge? Oh, man. Oh, I love cold plunges. No, I hate I mean, I hate it every <laughs> single day. That's the most fun part about it. Um, like 2024, what, what yeah. excites you the most when you think about I'm the I'm really excited. I mean, outside of the personal side, I'm unbelievably excited about my son and continuing to see him grow up. Professionally, I'm incredibly excited about the opportunity to bring more people together in person. Um, I mean, I'm planning in 2024 to do at least six, hopefully up to 10 in-person live events all around the world. And I mean, I'd love to do one in India, one in London, one in Australia, a handful in the US. I just want to bring people together into those rooms that I feel like I've had the opportunity to benefit from that most people don't have access to on a regular basis. And if I can go around the world and create those rooms for other people, I will really consider that uh, a valuable and incredible mission that I can be a part of. 
you've been on so many podcasts of which I've listened to almost all of them. And <laughs> I think they're all fantastic. And you've gone on such great shows. I feel like the hosts have asked you great questions with that in mind. If you have a response to this, what's a question you've always wanted to reply to that you've never oh, been man. asked? That's hard. Uh, I, so, I mean, one thing that all of these podcasts focus on is your successes. Like everything is about the wins. Everything's about, hey, you've done this. You've accomplished this. Talk about it. You know, you've, you're successful. Like what are your what are your insecurities? What are your failures? Like, what do you worry about at night? What keeps you up? What, you know, like those things, more vulnerable aspects of who you are as a human, I feel like doesn't really come up um, when you have these conversations typically. So what does keep you up at night? There you go. Oh, um, losing everything. That's like my deepest, darkest fear in the world is just I feel like I have been unbelievably fortunate in my life in a lot of ways. And I, like a lot of people, I don't feel deserving of all of the good fortune that I've had. And my deepest fear is that I get struck with the blow of whatever, bad luck, what bad fortune, whatever you want to call it, that takes all of this out. And that is total bad luck and chance, right? Like I have people message me about losing a family member, losing their spouse, losing their child. I mean, it's like incomprehensible pain and challenge that is totally out of your control. And that scares the shit out of me. And I don't, I try not to think about it because it scares me so much. Um, like I could easily deal with my own terminal diagnosis. I, it would be terrible. It would suck. But I think I could deal with something like that. But someone close to me, I can't imagine how I would possibly recover from something like that. And that really, really scares me. Like something that just takes you out of the game forever. Um, yeah, even now, like just thinking about it, it's just a, it's really, really hard to comprehend how people get through that. I know it's big in Stanford circles, but also is the runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize. Have you read When Breath Becomes Air? Oh, my favorite book of all time. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Because I think that, I mean, it's such a beautiful, I've yeah. never cried so much reading a book yeah. and I'm not super emotional. I think it tackles that, that question and some of those really tough aspects. Yeah, I read that book once a year. Um, the first time I read it was on a plane and the woman next to me had to ask if I was okay because I was just <laughs> sobbing on this yeah. flight. Um yeah, I mean, the book, for people that haven't read it, is all about this Stanford neurosurgeon who gets diagnosed with terminal cancer and is wrestling with the diagnosis in the last year of his life before he dies um, and dealing with, like, you know, how he thinks about his, his child being born after he's gone and all of these awful, awful things. Uh, I mean, that book was a formative part of why I write and talk about time so much and why I talk about embracing the present as much as I do. Um I mean, every time I get on a plane, I, like, send a text to people that I love before my plane takes off. I mean, I'm, like, really locked in on this kind of... Like, I think about it way too much, uh, frankly, uh, my own mortality and the mortality of those people around me. Because I just know that... Uh, I, I Like, one of my biggest fears in the world is sort of uh, um, unexpressed love, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I've never really thought about it in that term, but unexpressed love is really my big fear. I never want, I don't want to die. 
without having expressed love that I feel for other people. And I don't want other people to be lost without them knowing how much I cared about them. And I'm not particularly good at expressing emotion or love vocally. I don't think I've told my parents enough of how much I care about them. I don't think I've told my sister how much I care about her. I've done a great job of telling my wife. Um, but I need to be better about that. I think we all need to be better about that because at the end of the day, that's what you don't want. You don't want unexpressed love. I heard about the concept from crazy popular, I think, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He said the urgency to express love now, not later, comes with the realization that you're going to die one day. And so I, I do think a lot of these things come back to reflecting on your own mortality, which I think is interesting. As we wrap up today's discussion, uh, I know we could talk for many, many more hours. We'll have to put a bow on this one and uh, talk another time some more. But the question I have for you, a final serious question for you uh, before wrapping up is we're recording this on November 9th, 2023. I'm assuming you've thought about this concept where until the end of time, until you die, social media, Instagram, TikTok, although we'll see in the U.S. if it, if it stays, um, you know, your newsletter, the Curiosity Chronicle, like those things will be up there past your time and your kids, your grandkids will be able to go back and, you know, see the 30 second clip. But for this podcast specifically, you know, your son could one day listen, your grandkids could one day listen. Who knows? This could potentially be talked about on the porch when you're 80. There you this go. Specific conversation. What do you want to share about this version of you, Sahil Bloom, November 9, 2023, to put it in a time capsule. What, what do you want people to know about Love this question? Love that question. Love that question. Um, I would want people to know that I feel like I am in a place in my life that is this really beautiful moment of calm. Um, and it might be in between storms and there have been storms in the past and I know there will be storms in the future, but I am in this moment of calm in between storms that I'm so, so grateful for and that I, in the present moment, am unbelievably like 10 out of 10 just happy and, uh, and appreciating. The final question I ask every single guest on every single episode on a very light note compared to what we've been talking about. The question is, if you had Gordon Ramsay coming over to your house for dinner, what would you choose to make him? <laughs> what would I choose to make him? Oh, uh, probably try to make him a beef Wellington and see, oh, wow. <laughs> see, see if I could top his famous beef Wellington. Um, yeah, maybe I would try to do that. If, if, I, could, if I was going to fail at that, I guess I would make him a steak. There you go. So, Hill, it's been an absolute privilege and honor speaking with you i've looked up to you for a while now gained tremendous insight from your work and it's inspired a lot of the things i'm doing today so you mentioned wanting to impact and reach a billion people and you talked to one of them today so i appreciate you and uh if you're a listener make sure you check out the show notes for all the amazing stuff he's doing so i appreciate you man thank you so much for having me awesome it's a wrap man killed it